All right, welcome back to 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and joining me for episode 31 is Jason Freed, co-founder and CEO of Basecamp, a project management tool that helps you run and understand your business. Jason and his co-founder literally wrote the book on remote work and are big believers in slow, steady growth versus rapid expansion. Not only is Basecamp's blog, Signal vs. Noise, widely regarded as some of the best guidance out there, but Jason has been cited twice on this show as the person founders would most want to interview. I'm thrilled to be able to do just that today, and so with that, here's Jason. All right. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being on my show today. It's great to have you. Yeah. It's fun to be here. Thanks for asking me to be on. You are uh, actually the first founder that I've had on that other founders have told me they were, you are the founder they most want to interview. So it feels very oh, meta to have you on. <laughs> that's very nice uh, of them. Thank you. So start by telling us about Basecamp and what it is. Sure. So uh, Basecamp is, well, it's changed a lot over the years. I'll tell you what it is now. Um, mm-hmm. Basecamp is a tool primarily used by small businesses, mostly small business owners who are unable to get a handle on their business anymore. Uh, People are shooting too many emails back and forth. They feel disorganized. There's too many chats going on. They can't move projects forward. They can't make forward progress. They don't know what the hell's happening in their business anymore. It's just kind of a mess. And so they turn to Basecamp when they want to run projects in an organized way, when they want to communicate company-wide and be able to make announcements all in one place. And they want to keep track of who's doing what, when, and you know what's due when, that sort of thing. So it's a project management tool, but it's a little bit bigger than that. And it's a way to run a business and understand what's happening in your business. And so things aren't just scattered all over the place randomly. Yeah, great. I know that actually we started using it at Ionic when Slack just became really overwhelming. I read your article about group chat actually on, on Medium. And I think it's an interesting point because you know, on the one hand, Slack is great for creating a culture, but it would find that when you logged off Slack to actually do your work uh, and you get back on, you have 300 missed messages and it would just start to feel like, do I actually have to respond to all of these? Am I having this FOMO of missing out, but I don't necessarily want Slack on all the time when it becomes quite distracting. So I think Basecamp was our solution yeah. personally. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, And a lot of customers come to us after using trying to use Slack or something similar to that where... You know, they think they have a communications problem, but they actually don't. Um, and they just think they need to be communicating more, but they actually shouldn't be. What they need to be is organized. They need to know, you know, there needs to be, there needs to be tools in order to make some progress versus just talking about stuff. A lot of people just talk and talk and talk, and they can't get any traction, and they don't understand why. They're like, we're, we're talking, we're collaborating all the time. Like, why can't we get stuff off the ground? And the main reason why is because tools like Slack and other chat-based tools they're basically just places to talk. They're treadmills. And if you actually want to make progress, you need to be able to assign tasks. You need to be able to write messages that are not chat messages. You can't just work one line at a time. You can't have people feeling like they're missing out on stuff all the time. You can't have people feeling like they're behind and they catch up all the time on 300 unreads of which maybe only six of them even matter. You know, mm-hmm. like, there's a sense of just constant churning. Uh, and, and what you actually need to do is step, out, step off the treadmill and actually get some traction and be more deliberate about what you talk about and how you talk about it and give people more time to think about it and then organize the work that needs to get done and then move forward on it and have a sense of where you are as you go. So it's a very different approach. Um, I mean, Basecamp has chat in it. So it has, that is a, one of the tools you can use in Basecamp, but it's not mm-hmm. primarily about chat. Yep. 
And so it's funny that you mentioned traction because, you know, you said the company 37 Signals started in 1989, but that I think Basecamp was started around 2004-ish. Was that right? Yeah, 2004. And so you experienced, you know, I was on your about page and there was that graph of your customers and you've experienced Mm -hmm. insanely steady growth. At first it seemed, you know, like the hockey stick, but I was looking more into the numbers and it's very linear in this great way. And so have things changed substantially from having 100,000 customers to over two and a half million where you are now? And how does that change your operations and how you run, if at all? Yeah, so, you know, we've we've been at the base camp Thing since 2004, like you said, and you know we've never been after rapid growth. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, I don't think that's a good thing in general. I don't think rapid growth is, t- is typically a good thing. I think steady, consistent growth for the most part is a, is a good thing. Um, now, of course, when you're really small, we have like starting from zero, and you know you, you get some traction. The first few years might feel like they're really rapid growth, but when you look at it over the long term, what you probably really want is steady, consistent growth. So that's something we've always tried to manage, and, and that's why we don't, um, you know, we haven't taken outside money for to try and like grow the company. Um, we don't do any marketing or advertising in a big way that would grow the company faster. It's just we want to grow organically and naturally, which is pretty much slow and steady. Um, what we've had to do as we've gotten more and more and more customers over the years is, is increase the size of the business a bit. So we have 15 or 16 people on customer service when we used to just, I used to do it all myself when we first started. I did it myself for the first two years. Um, and, you know, at some point you hire a second person on a customer service and two or three, mm-hmm. four or five, and now we're up to about 15. And, you know, that's what you need to do to, to, to make sure customers get fast response times. If you, if you email us, if you go to basecamp.com slash support, we have a, a line at the top that shows our average response time. I think right now it's about eight minutes or something like that. And, and we want to make sure we get back to people quickly. So that's a big part of the company that, that will continue to grow. But other than that, we want to keep the company as small as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Small teams, small company, small company feel. Everyone knows each other. And we can move fast and do our own thing without having to sort of pull along a big, huge company with a lot of people. So really just a heavy commitment to quality as you scale. And maybe scale is not the right word, as you just continually to grow. Yeah, it, and I think that's the way to put it, which is that scale scale is not the um, it's not a word we actually use internally at all ever. Mostly because scale or scaling is sort of become synonymous with with rapid growth and like mm-hmm. massive expansion. And I think the words you use have a lot to do with you know how people think about things internally. So if we talk about anything, it'd be growth, but we don't even talk about that. We just talk about let's continue to do a good job. Let's build the best product we know how to build. Let's build the best company we know how to build. Let's build the kind of company that we want to work at every day. Let's take care of our employees, take care of our customers, take care of you know the world that we're in as best we can. And if we do all those things well, um, business should continue to to go well. And that's kind of how we've always approached it. So it's never like we're never we don't have targets internally. We don't say we need to grow 18% this year, or we need to get from 120,000 customers to 160,000 customers. Like we don't we don't look at things like that way. We just do the best we can all the mm-hmm. time. And then basically whatever happens, happens. That's, that's all we can control and all we can do. And so since you didn't take any outside funding, did you have any trusted advisors though that you used or turned to when creating the company? Not really in a formal way. There's people mm-hmm. I've known over the years that I've asked for advice here and there, or, I, or people I don't know that I, I pay attention to, people whose books I've read or stories I've read or, or just careers I've 
been interested in following to some to some degree. But you know, mostly we've just trusted our gut and trusted ourselves to do what we want to do the way we want to do it. And you know, you uh, you do your best, and hopefully that's good enough. And, and that's kind of how we've always been. It's not that other people don't have great ideas and great advice. I mean, I think there's plenty of it out there, and I, I still continue to get it. But I do think that there's actually there's an advice industry that's been built up, which I don't I'm not a big fan of. I think people are looking for too much advice, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think they'd be better off in many cases just doing it. Just go and make something and don't keep asking everyone what they would do. Just do do what you're going to do. Trust yourself. Build build up a trust in yourself. Build up some conviction of your own. And go. It's not that you shouldn't ask questions and whatnot, but like at some point, you just got to stop asking everyone and looking to everyone else to tell you what to do. And I, I've noticed in the entrepreneurial circles, uh, and just you know, in, in a lot of online communities and stuff, there's just a lot of everyone's asking other people what to do versus just just take a direction and go and, and do your best and and start to learn how to improve your own call and your own intuition. So that's that's been. I mean, again, this is just my experience. There's Mm -hmm. many, many ways to do all this, but that's, that's how we've always done it. Yeah. It does feel like there's an overload of information out there as of late, especially. Um, But before, you know, this podcast show is mainly about you and your childhood, but before we get into that, I, I'm really curious about remote workers since, you know, that's something that you've really talked at length about from your books to your Ted talk about why work doesn't happen at work. And so my big question though, is about, culture because I, you know, I used to be a remote employee. And while I do think I got a lot of work done when I was not in the office, I'm a pretty social person. And I I constantly felt, you know, even though there were chats and and ways to create a culture, I I missed building relationships in person. And so I wonder how you rack, like how you think about that idea and make it so you can balance the two. Because I do think having relationships with your coworkers is important just because we're social animals. Yeah. I, I agree with all those points. Remote is it's a different way to work, and, and for some people, it suits them really well, and for others, not so well. So part, part of it is deciding what kind of company you want to be and then finding people who enjoy those conditions. So a good number of our employees um, really, really enjoy remote working for a variety of reasons. They get to live in a different place around the world that, that appeals to them versus being locked into a, a, a place because they have a job in that place. So we have people who live on farms. We have people who live in very rural areas. We have people who, who move cities all the time. We had some people who lived in an airstream and traveled around the country. I mean, there's so people who want that kind of lifestyle. They 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 are attracted to this sort of thing. People who have young kids, they want to see their kids at home. They want mm-hmm. to be able to see their kids in the morning and you know early uh, when they get uh, when they get off work or whatever that kind of thing. But um, culture still important, obviously, and you need to get to know people, no doubt. So. What we do is we, we have a few different things that we do. Um, once a month, um, five or seven random people from the company uh, get together on a Google Hangout and do uh, a call for an hour. And it's, it's picked, uh, Andrea, who runs our office, she, she picks the, 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 the five people plus me and David, two business owners. And we just catch up for an hour uh, all together about, and the, and the rule is you cannot talk about work. So it's just, you know, what's going on in your life? What are you doing? What's, what's happening? And we just kind of catch up that way. And then Andrea transcribes that call and she adds her own little flavor to it. And she posts that in base camp for the rest of the company to, to, to read up on and enjoy. And we all get to learn a little bit about each other that way once a month. Um, twice a year for a week, we fly everybody into Chicago 
or another city around the world, and we all hang out together as a company for a week. So we get to see each other intensely for for a week. Um, small teams inside the company will often do their own little mini mini uh, meetups. So, for example, the mobile team went and, and rented a house down in New Orleans, and they all flew to New Orleans and spent a week together. So there's you know, support team has done this many times. There's a lot of different little small groups doing that. So we've got the the random once a month sort of what's up with life hangout. We've got these twice a year meetings where everyone's in person. We've got these small groups doing these meetups throughout the year. Um, we also use Basecamp, the product, to, to get some of the stuff. So every every Monday morning, Basecamp three, uh, the product will will has this feature called automatic questions and, or check ins, and it will ask everybody, "What'd you do this weekend?" And it's totally optional, but people share all sorts of things. They share things about their vacations and the DIY projects they're working on, and and their kids and pictures of their kids and Someone wants to see to visit their grandparents in their 90s, and they told a story about that. And and this person's like, "Well, I, I built this this weekend. I've been working on a shed. I've been working on my backyard." Or this person's like, "I just planted a new garden." And you get all these pictures and all these rich stories of people every single week from all over the world. And so part of it is that our culture is actually incredibly vibrant because we have people all over the world and from different cultures and different backgrounds and different cities in the past and in the present. And every week we're filling each other in on what's going on in our lives. So it's not in person around a table, but it's very rich with pictures, which is actually often more rich than sitting around a table mm-hmm. and talking and, and stories. And then we do these, you know, face uh, video stuff and then face to face. So we do the best we can. And it is very important. I totally agree. It's super important. And I don't think a chat room, for example, is enough like that. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that you just kind of open a chat room and now people are there's a culture there. It's like it, that's not anywhere near enough. So those are some of the things that we do. I love those. I really do. I think getting together and really knowing what's happening in people's lives outside of work is really important. I also think it creates more empathy for coworkers and actually ends up creating a better work product just because you get to know everyone better. Um, And I at least always know that when you care more about your employees, you want to do a better job for them as well. Um, So, but let's switch gears and talk about you. So where did you grow up? I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, so about uh, 30 miles north of Chicago in a suburb called Deerfield. So hence why you live here now? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here in Chicago now. I grew up here. I think I was born in the city. I think my parents lived here for a couple of years and we moved out to the Burbs. Grew up in the Burbs, went to high school, the whole thing in the Burbs. And then I actually um, went to college out in Arizona. So I went to University of Arizona in Tucson. And then I did a couple of small things after that and I came back to Chicago. So I'm mostly, I'm from here and I've mostly been here. Mm-hmm. And so what do your parents do for, or what they do for a living when you were growing up? Yeah, my dad was a, uh, he had a few different jobs. He, um, for a while was running a, a factory, like a plastics factory. And then he quit that job and, and went into, um, like investing. So he was a stockbroker for a personal investor. And he sort of continues to do that. Like on the side now he's in his seventies. He just sort of dabbles. But, um, so he, 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 um, Worked for someone that basically became his own boss and invested his own money that he'd saved up over the years working for someone else. And my mom has done a few things. She was a real estate agent. She worked at a bank. This is before I was born. She worked at a bank. Then she was a real estate agent. Then for, I think, 20 some odd years, maybe even 30 years, close to 30 years, she was a secretary for interior designers, just her and this other woman. And my my mom ran the office for, for her. And then um, the interior designer just retired a few years back. And so my mom has been sort of just kind of 
doing this and doing that ever since. Great. And so do you think your dad's entrepreneurial experience inspired you to kind of think about entrepreneurship as a career or were you already thinking about it before that? Hard to say what inspired it. My mom's dad, so my grandfather was an entrepreneur. My my dad, my my dad basically told me at some point, I don't know how old I was, but he basically said, if you can, if you can avoid it, don't work for somebody else. But he also told me, don't have a partner in a business. And, and I have a wonderful <laughs> partner in my business. We've been in business yeah. together for over a decade now. So, um, so, you know, different, <laughs> different advice in different ways, but I, I always feel like I had something when I was 12, I was selling stuff to my friends. I, you know, I would, I would, I did some baseball card trading. I would buy and sell a variety of other things. I would sell stereo equipment. I would sell cordless phones, you know, way back in the day. Like I, I would do a bunch of stuff. I would, then, then, then I got a job selling shoes and I would buy some shoes and I'd, I'd resell them and, and there's like all sorts of stuff. So I've always been interested in buying and selling and, and business activity, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it was. I, right after college, I, I graduated and I went to work for somebody else. Um, that was my first job out of, out of college. And I worked there for about three months and I just realized that I, I just wasn't not really built to work for someone else. It's just not my thing. Um, I love working with people, especially great people, but I'm not just built to work for someone. So I quit that job, moved back to Chicago and I've worked on my own ever since. And so I, I don't know where it all came from, but I was certainly exposed to it when I was younger. And, um, I just did stuff when I was younger and I got good at it. I think I've had a lot of practice. And so that's kind of perhaps why I'm still still at it. It's funny that you say, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs I talk to tell me this idea about not working for anyone else. And I always think about how then does that translate to being a boss of other people? You know, because you have your own company, but of course you have employees. So do you think about that, you know, with the type of boss you want to be or how that affects your company? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I think a lot about other people uh, at work and I would say that we have a really wonderful work environment. I would say we have the best benefits in the business and more than half of our companies have been with us for more than five years. And if you add in people have been with us for more than four years, I think we're up at past 60% now. So mm-hmm. we've got long, long-term people, people who stick around. We take really good care of people. I care about that. And one of the reasons why is because when I was much younger, um, like when I was 15 or something, I, I had some part-time jobs and I had a few different experiences. Um, one experience was a, I had a wonderful manager who was very supportive. He trusted me. He wanted me to do my best, you know, and he, he thought I could do my best and he was just tr- very trusting and supportive. And then I, there was a business owner who I worked for who didn't trust me at all. Didn't trust anybody. Thought everybody was, was stealing from her. It was looking over everyone's shoulder constantly. And so I've had these experiences of good management, bad management, good ownership, bad ownership. And I just want to, and, and look, I work at my company, so I have a company, but I'm, I'm an employee of the company essentially as well. So mm-hmm. I want to create a company that I want to work at. And that means I want a respectful environment. I want really smart people who don't throw their egos around and don't, you know, uh, it, it's not about who gets credit for what. We're all working on a problem together. We're all working on a product together. And so by, by wanting to create the, the best place for me to go to work myself, you know, by default, you create a great place to work for other people too. And then, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in the fact that we treat people really well and people stick around for a long time. It means a lot to us. But I, I don't think not wanting to work for someone else means that I don't, or I wouldn't, it doesn't, and I know you weren't implying this, but it, it doesn't suggest that 
I don't think about other people. I, I think a lot about mm-hmm. other people. But I think the key thing, again, is that I work at my own company. I want to work at a great company that I want to go to work with every day. So I'm, if I'm just going to be purely selfish about it, I want to make this the best place for me to work. And by doing that, I think you end up making it a great place for, for lots of different people to work. Yeah. I, I think that question to me is more about being a boss. And, and it's funny because I think, you know, I do think there's extreme importance to actually working for other people at some point in your career, just because at least I know I personally also learned what good management was when I experienced firsthand and what bad management was. And it's something I think about a lot as well as you start to, it's, it's a really great opportunity to have both and to realize who you want to emulate and how it feels to be, you know, belittled at work as well. I think it just makes you more and more cognizant of how you come across to other people. Um, And then, so you mentioned though, you had this, you know, you were taking risks as a, as a child or you were building these businesses and you you weren't really scared of being an entrepreneur. So obviously you have a high tolerance for risk, but did you ever think about not going to college or just kind of starting something right after high school? Yeah, so before I answer that, it's funny because I don't have a high tolerance for risk. I actually, <laughs> I'm pretty risk averse. And, and I think that many of the entrepreneurs, the best entrepreneurs I've met are that way. I don't like to take, I don't like, I'm kind of okay taking a risk, but I don't like to put myself at risk. Mm-hmm. And that's a different type of thing. So I actually am pretty careful about the things I do versus, versus taking big, huge risks. But that's another, that's a slightly different, different uh, slightly alternate definition, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not really want to go to college. I went, I didn't really want to graduate. My parents pretty much said I have to. Um, they were paying for school. And so I certainly felt an obligation to do that, but I, I didn't really get a lot out of it academically. Mm-hmm. That might've been the school I went to. It might've been my own. Actually, I don't think that's true. I think any school can teach you lots of things if you pay, pay attention. I had a couple of wonderful professors and I learned a lot from them, but overall, I don't feel like the experience taught me a whole lot, but part of that was probably because I was so, I was like running my own business while I was in school. I was doing freelance web design. I was doing some software design, some graphic design. I was, I was kind of busy with that already. So it wasn't like I went to school and then I got out and I wanted to figure out what to do next. I was kind of already doing something. And so in some ways, school was getting in. I felt like school was getting in my way. Mm-hmm. Um, like when I had to go to classes to learn to go to like a, a major in finance, I was going to these business classes. And, and I'm like, I'm actually already running a business. I'm doing well. And, um, I, I, these, these things, these, these concepts that they're telling me don't make any sense to me. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm learning anything here while when I go back and I talk to an actual client and I, and I pitch them a price and I pitch them a project and I work with them, then I'm actually learning a ton. Like I'm learning by doing versus learning by, by reading and hearing. And I've always felt that way about learning. So school just felt like it got in the way, but yeah. It was probably a good thing that I finished anyway, I, although I have never used my degree, but who, you know, who knew how things were going to turn out. And so, you know, you mentioned the risk averseness. So how do you mitigate risk when you start companies? How do you make sure it is a safer bet or, or are there any strategies you employ to really test out that you have a viable idea? So one thing is not to get ahead of yourself or not to get ahead of your skis, as they say. So, keep, you know, keep your costs incredibly low. This is the thing that blows me away about a lot of new businesses that start. They start with really high costs. They, they go get an office, they go raise money, they go hire more people than they need. 
uh, people are looking for co-founders, like uh, right off the bat, like to start something, can you start something yourself, like out of your house, your apartment, whatever you have, your dorm room, like keep your costs very low. Then you don't need to be that successful to, to start doing well. Like you don't need to, you don't need to have a breakthrough idea to just start to do well. And that's how I've always felt. Like, so I, you know, in, with, with my own company, we didn't hire our second person until we could afford to. We didn't hire a third person until we could afford to, or a fourth person until we could afford to. We never hired ahead of ourselves. We never hired the six when we could only afford five. And it's, it sounds very kind of old fashioned and, and frugal in a sense, but I think it's sort of the only way to begin to mitigate risk is to make sure that you never put yourself at that kind of risk. Certainly you could hire three when you could afford to hire three and then your business could still go out of business. Like that could all still happen, but at least it's, you're not stepping on your own toes and, and, and accelerating uh, mm -hmm. the sort of decompression of your business. So I've just always been careful about that. I've, I've never spent more than I took in. I, I've never bought anything in, in the business on credit. Um, now, granted, I'm not, you know, I'm in the software, I'm in the software business, so I don't have to buy expensive equipment. I don't have to, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm, I'm not opening a pizza restaurant where I have to buy a huge pizza oven and, you know, like invest in all that. So that's a little bit different, but, and so many people in our industry are building software, building apps or whatever, they, they don't know how good they have it. They have no idea how lucky they are to have basically no requirements other than a couple people and like a computer that costs a thousand bucks. And you're, 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 you're off and running. Like we're so fortunate yet. So many people should shoot themselves in the foot in the foot by hiring too many or raising a bunch of money or, or just kind of going big before they have anything to go on at all. So that's my suggestion is just don't get ahead of yourself. Be patient, build carefully and slowly. There's no rush. As long as you're profitable, there's no rush at all. When you're not profitable and when you're hemorrhaging money, you begin to rush. And that's when you begin to do bad things. So that's my advice. It's you know not applicable, of course, in every situation, but that's fundamentally what what I would suggest. No, I honestly I love that because I find that so many people freak out about having to be first to market or having their ideas stolen. And I just always think, you know, well, what are you going to do when competitors crop up? I don't think that in, that first, you know, being necessarily the first is always going to make you the best um, company. But I do find right. that it's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, here's the thing. There's a lot of stress or self-induced stress and anxiety in business. People worry about things they can't control. They worry about the competition nonstop. They're paying attention to every little move someone makes and they get nervous when someone else does something and they haven't done it yet. It's like, all you're doing is creating anxiety and stress for yourself. And you're not going to be in a good situation to think clearly in those situations. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is you cannot control what anyone else does. You cannot control the competition. They're going to do things all day long. There'll be a million competitors. There'll be new people you've never heard of, old big, huge people you have heard of, things that you don't even know you compete with that you do. You can't control any of those things. You could understand them if you want to, to a certain degree, but I would actually encourage you not to for the most part. I think you're better off focusing on what you know you're doing. Do the best job you can. Find customers who are on your side who, who need what you're selling and, and focus on your own business. Stop focusing on everyone else's business. Um, you can't do anything about it. So, you know, that, that's the kind of just like actually be a bit more insular in a sense, rather than just pay attention to everyone in your, in your industry. I think when you pay too much attention to everyone in your industry, you end up being like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that actually makes it much harder on you to stand out. 
it's harder to stand out when you know what everyone else is doing because inevitably you begin to be a bit more like them because their thoughts crowd out yours. If someone's ahead of you on something, you think you need to do that to catch up to them. And now all of a sudden they're running your business versus you running your business. And so, you know, I think you can get out of control pretty quickly if you're paying attention to too many things instead of just looking straight ahead and doing your own thing. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And so to end it, we're going to just switch gears with a few fun questions. And I normally ask people what is another startup they really love in their region. So for you, it would be the Midwest. But since you're so remote, I will just ask you, what's another startup that you really love anywhere? I really like, this isn't actually even a startup. Uh, they've been around for a while. Field Notes. You guys know Field Notes? You know Field Notes? No. This is no not, a, not a software company. They make little tiny paper notebooks. They're a friend of mine here in Chicago does it. And I, I admire and respect them so much because they're doing something. They're, they're, they're telling stories and they're connecting people with a brand. They recognize that their product is a commodity. It's a paper notebook. Lots of different companies that make paper notebooks. But what's so cool about what Field Notes does is they've, they've, they've taken that idea and they said, yeah, this is essentially a boring commodity product in a lot of ways. But what does it invoke? What is the idea? Like, what, what, what does it mean to have a paper notebook in your pocket? What does it mean to keep track of things? What does it mean to write stuff down when you see it? How does it tie back to historical paper notebooks? Like, and they do wonderful, innovative subscription model, for example. So subscribe to them and you get a different set of new designs on these notebooks every quarter. And they do wonderful video-based uh, advertising. They put together these really short films that are really wonderful and creative and they basically say that they're, what they're saying to me is anything can be interesting mm-hmm. um, if you approach it creatively. Because what could be less interesting than a paper notebook? It just it is one of one of millions of them, right? But so it's so easy, I think, for people to go, "Well, our, you know, our product's kind of boring or whatever, you know, whatever." There's nothing we can do creatively about it. But they 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 constantly show that you can if you think creatively about what you're doing and, and how to do it. So I, I'm a big big fan of what they're doing. And they're not a startup. They've been around for a while. But um, I think they're doing some of the most creative work in the business right now. And it's, it's great to see them continue. To oh, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm on their website right now. I actually have seen these. Um, I just didn't think I knew the brand name. But I'm looking you didn't at their know the name in- or something. Yeah, I'm looking at their inspiration. And I really love that they, they have that. Really interesting. And so finally, if you could interview another founder, who would you most want to talk to and why? a really good question. Somebody I would love, this is going to be a really weird one, but somebody I would love to talk to would be Judge Judy. <laughs> she's, she's from <laughs> my hometown. Field, right? So, uh, oh, no kidding. I've seen her around. <laughs> so, that's true. So I love Judge Judy. I think she's fantastic. <laughs> and, um, and she's also an incredibly astute business person. And I think that what she does is really unique and interesting. And I would just love to chat with her. I don't know why, but, but there's something about her that strikes me as interesting and sort of the last of a, of a, a certain breed of, of honesty and, and directness that is kind of otherwise gone from our culture. And I think it'd be fun to, fun to talk. So that would, that would be somebody I would, I would love to interview or, or talk I with or, or hear an interview with. Yeah. You know that she's also the most highest, by far the highest paid person on television, which is insane to yeah, me. Yeah, 50, 50 million a year. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> and, and people, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, come on. Like, no, truly. Like, this yeah. is what I'm saying about being an astute business person. She is incredibly sharp and 
the most accomplished and successful person on TV, really, yeah. ultimately. And she's been doing it for, gosh, I don't know, like 25 years or something. Like anyone who's done something for a long time in my book is not a fluke. Mm-hmm. You can't dismiss people who, oh, uh, Judge Judy at the courtroom, silly show, with reality TV. Where, like you're missing the point. It's first of all, it's none of those things. It is a courtroom thing, but it's, it's not reality TV in the traditional sense or the, the contemporary sense. And also she's been at it for a long time and fads come and go styles come and go. Everything comes and goes. When someone sticks through different eras of things, you've got to pay attention to them and pay and pay very close attention to them and study them. And um, so I'm a big fan of things that stick around for a long time because there's something good about those, something around, there's something there that's interesting. So anyway, that's my answer. Yeah. No, I love that because I, I think their duty to me is the epitome of transparency and no bullshit. And I think I, the reason why she's so popular is people like to have no bullshit. And that's basically what she is in a nutshell. She just says, she says what everyone is thinking. Like, well, no, you're being ridiculous. Here's what's actually happening. Um, and we're going to go right. from there. <laughs> yeah. And, and in today's world, that's way more valuable even than it was 20 years ago, because mm-hmm. now everything is bullshit. It seems like everything is bullshit. So like, there's even more value in, in, in who she is and what she does. So anyway, she, she'd be fascinating to, to, to meet or whatever one day. Jason, this was really awesome. And thank you so much for being on my show. It was great to have you. That was fun. Thanks for having me on. All right. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for episode 32.